answer, but I've known him for years, and I know that he won the battle with life, and I have the assurance from God's word this morning that my Uncle Bill is now with the God in whom he placed his trust. So I have real peace this morning, and so does the rest of my family who wish to say thank you to you all for allowing me the the time away to go and and honor him to do what was right and good, but also a chance to, to be with my family during what is admittedly a difficult time in our lives. Uh, God had some plans for me that I could not see uh, ahead of time. Some incredible things happened in my time with my family. And uh, if you'd like to hear more about those, I'll, I'll share those stories with you in private. Since this thing goes out over the internet to the whole universe, I'd rather just not do it that way, okay? But uh, I got to hear a little bit of Pastor Bill's sermon from last week, and I understand that God used it powerfully in some of your lives. We had a little glitch electronically, so we weren't able to get it on the website yet, but uh, tomorrow afternoon, we've recovered the file, and tomorrow afternoon, uh, it'll be up there, okay? Might be one of those things that you want to um, message to a friend and say, hey, give this uh, a listen. Thanks for listening closely uh, as Pastor Bill showed us one more time Um, how to follow God. And Pastor Bill, I want you to know how much I appreciate that when I'm away from here, this congregation is in very good hands. We appreciate you and your ministry among us. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I want to return to the passage that Pastor Bill read last week, Genesis chapter 4. In it, we read the story of Cain and Abel. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll just give you a quick synopsis. Two of the earliest humans, brothers, had grown up with some knowledge of a relational tension between them and God. They knew that this awkward distance was a result of their parents' stiff-arming of God, but it also had something to do with their own personal wrongdoing. That causes all of us, when we become aware of the fact that we've done wrong, to look away from God and and begin to avoid him. But they also had some idea that some gifts offered to God might make the difference and take care of the ug between them and him. Now, Cain was a farmer, so he brought some vegetables and grain to God. Abel was a rancher, so he brought animals. And when they presented their gifts to God, God took the opportunity to teach them something about the nature of the gap between him and them and and what it would produce in their lives if that problem wasn't taken care of. He told them that Abel's gift, the gift of animals, was a more appropriate gift than his brother's, considering the circumstances. Let me explain that. You see, God doesn't need food. A balanced diet isn't one of the big concerns of his life. So so Cain's gift of, of vegetables and grain just didn't matter in that sense. But it also demonstrated that Cain didn't get the nature of the problem. He really misunderstood what was happening between him and God. But in sacrificing animals, Abel seemed to recognize that in their sin, people hadn't just broken some legal statute. They had cut themselves off from their life-giving connection with God, the God who wanted nothing more than to have an ongoing relationship with them. Sacrificing the lambs wasn't um, serving God mutton stew. Instead, it was a drama that illustrated Abel's sorrow 
and illustrated his recognition of the true nature of the problem between God and sinful human beings. And it served to point ahead in time to that time when God would provide a permanent and perfectly effective remedy to the broken relationship problem. So he accepted Abel's gift and he instructed Cain about the shortcoming of his gift in the process. And therein lies the problem. Instead of accepting God's loving correction, Cain instead got angry at God, but then turned his anger on his brother in the form of jealousy. Abel, like a brother would do, decided that he should talk to Cain and try to settle him down and help him learn the lesson that God was trying to teach him. He said that God wasn't picking favorites, but was trying to teach them both how to reconnect with him, and that all that Cain had to do was to stop and listen and learn and act accordingly, and everything would be fine between him and God. But because he was a brother, he also took a little opportunity to talk down to him, to warn Cain, hey man, this anger and jealousy problem of yours that comes from you always preferring you, it's going to get you in trouble if you're not careful. At that moment, Cain lost sight of everything that was important, everything that was right, everything that was good, and he chose to demonstrate his preference for himself over everyone else, God and his brother included, And the scriptures tell us that he attacked Abel. And for the first time in human history, the dust of the earth was then soaked with the blood of humans. God gave Cain a little bit of time to think about this and then approached him directly. And when Cain didn't immediately offer to come clean, God decided to probe a bit and give him another chance to talk about it. He said, where's your brother, bud? I mean, you guys are always together, but, but he's not here now. What's going on? Cain's response has, of course, become famous, both for its callous simplicity, but also because it became the perfect opportunity for God to teach the ultimate governing truth that was supposed to order all human relationships. Still makes my heart skip a beat even to say it, but, but Cain sassed God, flippantly saying, what, am I my brother's keeper? An amazing story. Let me break it down for you a little bit. What's this story about? Um, One of these days, I'm going to write a book. And in it, I always promise that I will not change the names to protect the guilty. So, um, look for your name. Um, But this morning, I will uh, not mention names just because. Um, Let me tell you first what this story is not about. Two, (laughs) you're going to love this, man. Two two people, two guys in this church came and talked to me. um, And I'm not making fun of them, I I promise. Just having fun with them, okay? Uh, A friend of theirs from another world religion told them that the real meaning of the Cain and Abel story has something to do with Sasquatch. Come on, this is suddenly the best sermon ever, right? Because I just said Sasquatch. (laughs) What is not to love? Yeah, apparently there is some religion out there that is of the opinion that if you read on in the story, it says that, that when God confronted Cain, he realized, oh, I'm busted, 
and said, now everybody's going to hate me and they're going to try to kill me. And God says, don't worry about that. I'm going to preserve your life. I will set a mark on you so that, so that people will always recognize you are who you are and that they're not supposed to mess with you. But you're going to be a homeless wanderer forever. Sasquatch, right. Hair was the mark and nobody's ever been able to kill one because he's roaming the earth forever. I really like that story, but it is so not the point. So totally not the point, okay? Uh, sorry, other world religion. There is no Sasquatch. Do we need to say that? Okay, all right, all right. There's no Sasquatch. Uh, that, so at the, the first statement that I need to make regarding the meaning of the Cain and Abel story, not about Sasquatch, okay? Number two, it is not about what God likes, and doesn't like. He's, it's not that God um, is a carnivore and not a vegetarian. The story is not primarily about jealousy. It's not primarily about murder. It's about one of the most important ideas in all of the Bible, all of life, all of the world. It's about God's plan for humans. And his plan for humans is that we take care of one another because of our love for one another and because we believe it is our sacred responsibility given to us by God himself. All of that is wrapped up in this one statement. I am my brother's keeper. If you believe it, would you say it with me today? I am am my brother's keeper. Who you just said a lot. This is not just one of the oldest lessons in the world. It is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus made that much clear when he told the story that we have called the Good Samaritan. It's about a man who believed that anyone who needed his help should receive it. One of Jesus' three very best friends, a man named John, thought and taught the same thing. He taught it as one of the foundational truths for Christ followers. He taught it as the real Jesus way. We're learning about what it means to join the love revolution, so let's remind ourselves of the definition of love. It's more than emotion. It's more than feeling. It lasts longer than mere sentiment because it consists of something more definite and profound and measurable. All of the Bible's words for love from both Old and New Testaments, both Hebrew and Greek original languages, have at their roots the idea love means to prefer. Therefore, the biblical definition of love is, read it with me, love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense by the help of the Holy Spirit. One more time. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others over and above myself, even at great personal expense by the help of the Holy Spirit. Right. Now, let's take a look at what John was trying to teach us about how to live the values of the love revolution in that passage that Tom just shared with us. In this passage, he gives us at least four principles for living our lives as those who will love, who will prefer the well-being of others. And the first uh, principle is this. Take your cues from Jesus. If you look at verse 16, it's basically what it's trying to tell us. Take your cues from Jesus. It says, this is how we know what love is. We've had all these ideas. 
We've had all these feelings, but if you want to know what love is, we look at how Jesus lived, and he did what? He laid down his life for us. Laid down his life for us. It stands in stark contrast to the example of Cain. Cain didn't lay down his life. Cain required his brother's life of him. Took Abel's life. In that one definitive act, a jealous rage that ended in murder, Cain draws the opposite example for us. Prefer Abel over himself? You've got to be kidding. Cain preferred Cain and demonstrated it clearly. But Jesus' example was one of consistently demonstrating preference for the well-being of others over and above himself, even when it cost him. Let me share with you a few examples. Early on, in uh, right around age 29, age 30, Jesus was working as a carpenter, going about daily life, much like us. Got a job to do, you get up in the morning, you do it, and at the end of the day, you're tired and you spend a little bit of time with your family, you rest, you get up the next day and you do the same thing. But there are these breaks in the schedule for us that all of us love. Uh, the, the Jewish people of this time understood something that we Americans don't. Um, they understood that a real party lasts for a full week instead of just, you know, until 9.30 when all of us um, really boring people go home. Uh, Instead, Jesus, uh, living in that culture, um, had this break from work, and it was a week-long break. He was going to go elsewhere in the north country of, of Israel, up in the Galilee region, to this little town of Cana, to attend a wedding, most likely of a, a distant relative. And when folks came from those kinds of distances, they tended to stay and they would party for several days on end. Well, lay low during the wedding feast, just kind of keep his head down and, and be one of, the, uh, one of the revelers, one of the well-wishers to this young couple. That's what Jesus was hoping to do, hoping to keep the idea of his true identity as Messiah secret for a little bit longer. But there was a problem. See, the the young couple either had more guests than they had thought would come, or the guy planning the feast hadn't planned very well, but they ran out of wine, and that would have been uh, processed as some sort of public humiliation that Jesus really didn't want these cousins of his to suffer. Secondly, because it seemed so very important to his own mother that he do something about it, he stated, I don't want to, but I'm going to. See where I'm headed with this? My preference is to lay low. My preference is to not put the Messiah card on the table yet, but I've got these people over here, this young couple who can be embarrassed for the rest of their lives when they think of their wedding instead of rejoicing over it. And I have this mom who is really insistent that I do things her way. You know, that's a, that's a cultural reality that we can't identify with. Yeah. Because he preferred the well-being of this couple, and he preferred his mother's desires over his own, Jesus turned water into wine. And all of a sudden, people were talking. You know, it was not without effect. It really did get his public ministry off to a very rocky start. But love's a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others, even at great personal expense, because Jesus truly preferred others, because Jesus loved, he laid down his preference.
Second example from the life of Jesus. He'd, been, he'd become this public figure, like would happen after a miracle like this, and all of a sudden, masses were starting to follow this guy around. And then he did some other things that made it um, absolutely undeniable that he was the promised Messiah from Israel's history. He started healing people. Know this. You want to draw a crowd? Start healing people of diseases. Lots and lots of people will come. And they did. When, wherever Jesus went, masses of people came. And as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of our New Testament, you'll see that early on in Jesus' ministry, it was paparazzi, man. It was, it was people surrounding him everywhere he went. And, and the example that I want to share with you today is after a long, hard day of people time, Jesus listening closely, hearing the, the cries of these mothers and, and seeing the little children coming, dragging broken and, and, and deformed limbs, having to listen to folks say, it's just, it's just like seven miles from here. Could you come to my house and and heal my servant, my daughter, my friend? After a full day of doing everything that he could and touching the lives of so many people, Jesus got to the end of the day and went, whew, I just, I need to rest. So I'm going to jump in the boat, I'm going to across the lake, and I'm going to head up into the mountains, and I like that part of the story, and tomorrow I'll just lay down and rest. Me and the Father spent some time together. So he worked until dark, and then he ran down to the shore, and he jumped onto the boat, and he started rowing across the lake. The next morning, he's approaching the other side of the lake. Sun's coming up, and he can see on the shore the masses of people who hadn't yet been served. They figured out which direction he was heading, and they'd run on foot around the perimeter of the lake, and they were waiting on him. While he's still out from shore a ways, he could adjust his course, head down the lake to where the terrain is a whole lot steeper and the shore much more difficult to navigate on foot, and he could guarantee himself some time alone to rest and heal. But what did he do? He pointed the boat straight toward the people. And after working hard all day, and rowing all night, he went and put his happy face on because he preferred the well-being of others over himself. Did Jesus hate himself? No. Jesus have a tiny little uh, self-image? No. Self-esteem problems? No. He just preferred other people more than himself. So he went and touched the lives of the people who wanted and needed him. Because that's what happens when you're tired, but somebody else has a need, and God has filled your heart with real love. Jesus laid down his personal preference, even when it cost him. One last example from the life of Jesus. He was just in the temple court teaching one day. And there was always some kind of a scuffle that happened in the in the temple there were pickpockets that worked there there were pompous religious officials who thought they needed to go and point out to people how they were not perfectly religious and they always came with this punishing kind of accusatory kind of tone and as Jesus was teaching he notices this this scuffle and he realizes that here come the religious officials and they have a prisoner with them 
They drag the prisoner over to Jesus and throw him forward. Only it wasn't a him. It was a woman. And she had been caught in the act of adultery. Not exactly sure how they went about, what they went about, but they caught this woman in the act. Where was the man? Hmm, don't know. But they dragged this woman before Jesus and threw her on the ground in front of him and said, what are you going to do with that? Condemned the woman? You've been caught in the act of adultery? Jesus said no. Now understand this. In so doing, it made Moses, their national hero, look like a chump. Jesus was saying, you don't follow the teachings of Moses in situations like this one. Moses was dead and gone. The homewrecker, however, was right in front of Jesus. So, by the way, were all of the people who could bring charges against Jesus if he recommended anything other than exactly what the law of Moses dictated for this woman. So it was clear, prefer self or prefer the adulterous woman. Prefer punishment for her or punishment for you. Now, wait a minute, why would Jesus be punished? See, the punishment for adultery was death by stoning. The punishment for making accusation against the law of Moses, which they believed was handed down by angels from God, was also death by stoning. Get the picture. It's not this neat, tidy little object story where they bring in some woman of ill repute and Jesus says, you should, you should I don't know, overlook it. No, no, no. It becomes crystal clear in this moment. You pick death for her, you pick death for you, pal. Pick! And what Jesus does is he prefers her and her humiliation over himself. Can you feel the power of that this morning? He loved. Self or others? Jesus or the guilty? Jesus said, I prefer her. I prefer you. Principle number one that John's trying to teach us is this. You want to know what love is? Take your cues from Jesus. Just watch what he did. He laid down his life, his preference for others. Second principle John tries to teach us is this. Words are not enough. John couldn't have made it more clear. Quit talking about it and do it. Don't take this out of context, okay? But in this specific one, true love doesn't wait. It acts. When it comes to love, to doing what helps other people, true love sooner or later shuts its mouth and puts some shoe leather on it where it isn't love. Solomon, remember him? King from the Old Testament? widely regarded across many cultures and down through the millennia as the wisest man who ever lived, taught us this. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when you now have it with you. Let me read it again. 
Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow when you now have it with you. What's he saying? It's not enough to say, I'd like to help. I one day will help. He says, if you've got the ability to do it right now, now is the time to love. Now is the time to act. But I'm tired. Yes, but do you love? But it's inconvenient. Yes, but do you love? This one's going to cost me. Yes, but do you love? If you have the ability to act, do it and do it now is what Solomon taught us. Because just saying, be warm, be well fed, not enough. Okay, this last week was uh, Groundhog Day. How many people have watched the movie Groundhog Day? Because it's epic, that's why. Everybody loves it. And, uh, and uh, so I, I guess I'll have to explain because half the hands weren't up. Uh, Groundhog Day is a movie with um, the best comedic actor ever, um, Bill Murray. And some, he's a jerk. He's just the world's biggest, horrible, mean-spirited, selfish jerk. And so apparently God tries to um, teach the boy a lesson. So he just f- kind of sticks time on the repeat cycle so that he has to live Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where Punxsutawney Phil, the prognosticator of prognosticators, this little rodent, they parade him around and act like he predicts the weather. And Phil, um, not Phil, uh, Bill Murray's character, he hates this because he has to go out every year. He's a weatherman, right? So he has to go out and do this horrible shtick out in Hickville, Pennsylvania every year. He hates it. So he's making everybody else on the team miserable while he does it. And God just sticks him in this time loop where he wakes up the next morning ready to drive back to Pittsburgh only to find out it's Groundhog Day again. And so he makes everybody and himself miserable that day. And he wakes up the next morning and it is Groundhog Day again and again and again. And he tries to manipulate the thing so that now it can work for him. Only that blows up in his face again and again and again and again. Hmm. I have no idea why I'm talking about Groundhog Day anymore, but that's a great movie. Um, Oh, I know now. It's because in one of those scenes. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God for notes. (laughs) Um, Uh... It's because in one of those scenes, there's, this, there's this, uh, this homeless man who's a panhandler who, as he comes around the corner onto the town square every day, here's this homeless man who asks him for some change. And they show day after day as he's coming by Bill Murray's character just giving him excuses, just giving him excuses, just giving him excuses. And the ultimate one, kind of funny, wait for it, is I'll get you tomorrow. Because there is no tomorrow. See, He had the coin in his pocket. He had the ability to do good right then and there. But because he preferred himself, he said, no, I'll catch you tomorrow in the hopes that he wouldn't ever have to. Solomon taught us. Why Solomon taught us? If you have the ability to do good, do it and do it now. There's this scene at the end of the movie where he finally gets the point he helps the guy. It's really the best part of the movie. Other than Bill Murray doing what Bill Murray does, because that's funny. Okay? Yeah. All right, here we go. I want to speak to all of us now. Will you listen for the voice of God's Holy Spirit 
with me for the next few minutes? God's purpose for our wealth is not our pleasure. When God decided to make us pretty comfortable people, socioeconomically speaking, it wasn't because we were his favorites, and it wasn't because he wanted to spoil us. The purpose for God making us wealthy never was our own pleasure, but the well-being of others. You ever ask the question why you were born here and not in famine-stricken Ethiopia? You should ask yourself that question. The answer lies in the trust of God. Let me explain. I know why God gave you so very much. It's because he thought he could trust you with his things. Here's, here's this little phrase that I want you to grab a hold of and, and let it sink into your head and heart and begin to shape the way that you live. Do God's thing with God's things. Do God's thing with God's things. God's things, your wealth. It's not yours, it's on loan from God. God's thing is love. Right? Isn't that what all of the scriptures are trying to say? Is that God prefers the well-being of his children? The reason that God entrusted us with the wealth that he's given to us isn't so that we can use it to build more and be even more comfortable. But he thought that he could trust us to do his thing with his things, and so he poured it out into our hands. And there's just no other way to see it. Because God doesn't like the idea of starving children. Whether in Ethiopia or these few counties right here, we've been trusted with God's things because he trusts us to do his thing with them. And demonstrated preference for the well-being of others is God's thing. Listen, I've heard it all and I have said it all when it comes to the excuse department. I've heard and offered the excuses that are couched in theological language, in political rhetoric, and in mere arrogance and greed. But our abundance, it's not about our rights. It's not about who earned what in this life and that's the way it works. It's not about who wasted opportunities when they were young and who made wise decisions and has capitalized on them. This is not about who's God's favorite or, or God's favorite ideology. Capitalism! It's about God's intent and our obedience. And God intends for all of his children to eat, to have shelter, and to not have to hope for the luxury of basic hygiene or a drink of clean water. When we move past the excuses, we can begin to use our abundance to help others, and that becomes the most believable sign of God and of his love. It's the Old Testament way 
It's the New Testament way. It's the Jesus way. Therefore, it is our way. Amen? John was trying to teach us some things about the, the values of this love revolution. He taught us to take our cues from Jesus. He, he taught us that words are not enough. He also taught us that actions, not mere faith-filled words, are what will give us confidence in the presence of God. Read verses 19 through 23 with me. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Let me, let me just unpack this. John is saying all this stuff about love. Then he says, you want to know how if you really belong to the truth? When your heart is accusing you, you don't know whether you've, you've ended up in the right place or not. You want to know how to let your heart go in the presence of God, who knows everything, this is how. Skip down through there a little bit. Uh, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Now listen, verse 23, and this is his command. Ready for it? To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. I have some theological work to do here this morning. It's a little troubling what John teaches. It's a little troubling to those of us who can recite the creed of salvation by grace through faith alone. But you read John's words with me. Can you tell me what else they might possibly mean when he says, this is the command, to believe and to love? Do you get to pick just one of those? I don't think the text allows us that luxury. Jesus' half-brother James also taught that faith and action are absolutely inseparable. I'll tell you this, I know that my salvation, my place in heaven with God is secured by what Jesus has done because when I pile up all of my good works, they got stains all over them. But when I appear before God, one day as we all will, the scriptures teach that I can have confidence that comes from two things, belief in his son and having loved my brother. It's awkward because we still want to latch on to salvation by grace through faith alone, which we do believe. But John and James both taught there is no faith. Your faith's a sham if you don't act. Hmm. It comes down to this, the fourth principle. Love means you give your life. Love means you give your life. Love means you give your time. Love means you give your skills. Love means you give and others get. Maybe in unfair proportion, but you don't care because you love. God will one day ask you about your brother. 
He will one day ask you about your sister. How will you answer? You're probably not going to be so defiant as to look God in the eye and say, well, how should I know, like Cain did? But if your answer on that day is anything other than, well, he's right here where I can take care of him, or she's right over there where I always go to take care of her, it will not satisfy the God who said, you are your brother's keeper, and who said, I'm your keeper. Can I help you with the equation just a little bit? You've been given X. And it looks like just enough, and, or, or maybe barely not. It's all you have. And now, Pastor, you're telling me that some or all of that is supposed to go to other people? Well, then what about me? The answer is this. Here lies the importance of being part of a community of faith. Because I'll care for you and you care for someone else and someone, someone else sees my need. And then we rest ultimately on this one belief that if nobody else notices me and my need, I have a father who knows my name. Who provided, that, that, who provided X in the first place. He knows my name. I probably already told you, just so you know, I've got like 18 stories. I tell them all m multiple times. So you'll get to know all the cast of characters from my life. I was a young, arrogant man who had, uh, in a crashing economy, lost one of the two jobs that I needed to keep my young wife and I afloat with her still in college. And... Um, uh, my mom came to visit from Albuquerque and she had somehow got her hands on two cases of leftover Desert Storm MREs, meals ready to eat. <coughs> yeah. Um, the the military, profi <laughs> uh, <laughs> military really prides itself in efficient calories, but not in uh, gourmet uh, taste. Uh, at any rate, We'd, I'd been without this second job for a while, and, and I had a wife to take care of. And so I was, I was, my mom gave me these MREs for camping purposes. I like to eat better than that when I'm camping, but, uh, but I had them. And so I was, I was eating one meal a day because I heard that soldiers in combat can live on one of these things a day. So I was eating one MRE a day, and uh, that, you're just not living well. I'm going to tell you when you're, when you're eating MREs. But I was young and, and, and pride-filled man, and so I wouldn't tell anybody about our need. I talked to God about it, but I wasn't about to tell hu human beings because, you know. One day I was at my house when I wished I could have been at work, and I heard somebody coming up the front steps and a knock on the door. And there was this old farmer that I knew who never, ever called me by my name. I was Big C. He had been uh, stricken by polio as a boy, and in the couple of few months after he had recovered, was working on a on a baler um, making hay. And in those days, you had somebody who who stayed on top of the baler and tied the knots. And they hit a bumblebee nest, and he jumped off, and he landed in the nest and wrenched his knee and went to the ground. The bees almost killed him. But needless to say, when you've had polio and that kind of devastating injury, um, that man 
barely walked for the rest of his life, and you could hear him coming because of the click and the rattle. So I knew it was Robert when he was coming up those. Steps to my house. I opened the door, and here he was in his bib overalls and uh, his John Deere hat and two arms full of groceries. He said, Big C, the man upstairs told me you might be needing these. And he handed them to me and turned around and left. I promise I didn't tell anyone. But the God who knew my name, knew my need. He said, Cliff, if you will trust me, if you'll do my thing with my things, I got you covered. So we kept stretching in obedience to do the Lord's thing with the Lord's things. And he whispered my name in the ear of someone who was listening. Friends, I want you to know this thing is lopsided. The love revolution is lopsided. And it feels from the outside like you're the one who does all the giving. I promise you from the inside that thing's turned inside out. And you will see that there is a God who gets lavish with his belongings to help those who are in need who also walk in faith and obedience to him. And I also promise that you can't get this, really get it until you've tried it. There are certain parts of the Christian faith that are not propositional ideas. They are experiences that you must go through. Some things you can't know or understand except from the inside. All right, Pastor, so you got us convinced that we're supposed to love others and, and it's supposed to, uh, at times, cost us. What to do? How, how do I go about this? I want to offer to you just a brief set of recommendations, and they are nowhere uh, near an exhaustive list. Um, some of them are as simple as, you know, making a donation to some, um, t- to Family Promise, man, uh, among, among others. Others involve you getting involved in the joy and the grit and the pain of being a part of people's lives. I remember hearing during announcements that we need volunteers for Family Promise as well. Some of these things can involve you in in weekly responsibilities. Others are one time, two hours here and there. But know this, all of them require that you get your whole heart engaged in preference for others. Here's some options to get you started. Just want to talk about the money thing first so we can get it out of the way. But you should know this, going forward from here, I will never apologize for talking about money in church. Okay, It's never going to be awkward for me. I am a uh, I'm a little bit sorry if it's awkward for you. But uh, I know that those who um, analyze church in modern America say the church needs to uh, quit talking about money, and they're wrong. Because here's the deal. The scriptures talk about it a lot, and you talk about it and deal with it every day. Okay? Wouldn't it be great if the church actually helped you understand how to manage money? Well, it can. Wouldn't it be great if the church quit hiding about the fact that we need some of God's resources and would just forthrightly say it? So that's what I'll do, okay? We'll just talk about it plainly. Uh, When it comes down to the business of of finances, um, love means that you turn loose of some money so that others can have enough. And it means that you turn loose not just of extra money, both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach 
that the people of God are to engage in a practice called tithing. Tithe means one-tenth. So the Bible, from beginning to end, teaches that the way of the people of God is to discipline ourselves to take one-tenth of our income, return it to him through the ministry of his church, and let him and them deal with that. Let them, let us organizationally try to do as much good as we can with the tithes of individual people. However, the teaching of Scripture doesn't end there. Both Old and New Testaments also teach the principle of generosity. The, the first is the business of obedience. The second is the business of getting my heart engaged. But you should also know that the Scriptures don't stop at the idea of teaching us to be generous beyond mere requirements. Both Old and New Testaments also teach that there is a, a higher ground for those who can reach it by faith. And it's the idea of giving sacrificially. Got to tell you, that's where giving gets fun. The tithe belongs to God. But when we get generous, and when we get to the place where we give sacrificially, we then are set free from this principle of tithing, just giving to God and taking our hands off, and we get to take the generous and the sacrificial gifts, and we get to point them toward things that make our hearts beat fast. So you think, I really couldn't care less about helping start churches in Europe. Okay. But you love the idea of buying food for the poor in Asia. Fantastic. Have we got to work for you. You think, why is everybody always looking offshore when we've got so many hurting people here in the States, here in the LC Valley? Fantastic. Do we have an opportunity for you? Beyond your tithe, there is a way for you to direct every penny of your giving towards specific things that God has sensitized your heart toward. So, you know, we're doing things over in North Lewiston. You want to learn more about that? Uh, talk to, to Rick and Julie Burke. They can help you understand how you can, uh, how you can give there. Uh, the Church of the Nazarene, by the way, as a denomination, we are all over the place, people. We, we're, we're operating in over 160 countries today. If there's some part of this planet that interests you, if there is some medical or food or whatever kind of interest, you can direct monies there nazarene.org okay that's the website nazarene.org um, if you have troubles navigating that you call our office we'll help you uh, we'll help you get connected with that area of interest where you can give whether you want to work here locally or uh, on a global scale but start with tithing and work your way toward uh, generosity and sacrifice Let's also talk about some things that you can do with your time. And I know how this goes because you already are like me. You feel like you don't have enough time. You're already pressured to get everything in, right? Well, here's a little principle I want to teach you. You will never regret investing time in things that matter. You will never regret investing time in things that matter. And if you find yourself today saying, I wish I could do X, but I can't, then let me suggest this, that you take a real ruthless look at your schedule and see how much of it you're investing in things that don't matter. I'll tell you this, if you are a person who's really feeling a lot of time pressure, there's a good chance that it's because some things that aren't of enduring value have risen too far up the priority chain. 
You will always feel frustrated about not having enough time when you feel like you're spending your time on things that do not matter. You need some help with that? You call the church office. We've got some folks who can help you learn to organize your time. But I'll tell you this. You, you, will, you will get set free from the tyranny of time pressure when you are throwing yourself at something about which you are passionate. Okay? Time. How can you invest your time? Well, let me tell you how you can invest your time. Um, the Burks have something going in and their small group. By the way, it's, it's the Burks and their small group that really carry the burden for North Lewis and keep it in front of us. We want to applaud you guys for doing what you do and for helping us do what we can do. But if you talk to any of them in their small group, they can help you understand what the next event is and where we're going. This weekend, we were, um, we were able to, to help out over there by just transporting people back and forth to the laundromat and paying for their laundry, right? Next weekend, somewhere, uh, schedule-wise, talk to the Burks. I always get that stuff messed up. But here's a way for you to invest some time making a difference in the lives of other people, okay? Questions about that? I already told you who you can see. Um, you can invest in North Lewiston right here in our valley. You, uh, you might get involved in work and witness. If you've been on a work and witness trip, hand in the air, please, real quick, okay? Uh, wow, that's a lot. Um, that's disproportionate for a church this size. Fantastic. That excites me. That's good. Uh, if you don't know what work and witness is, it's this uh, enterprise, again, of our denomination that says uh, not just professional missionaries get to be missionaries, but that anybody who has a vision for it can get involved in a local team of people who will plan and carry out a mission somewhere around this world. So I know you guys have been to Ecuador and you've been to the Philippines and call them out. Where else have you been? Thailand, Dominican. Yeah, Alabama. Exotic Alabama. <laughs> Woo! They speak a different language there, don't they, Kathy? Yep. Yeah, work and witness is the thing where we take uh, our vacation time and we take money that the Lord has put in our hands and we direct it specifically toward a project. We go uh, as a group from this church and make it happen somewhere in this world. We're planning another work and witness trip for 2013, but you should know that under my leadership, um, I want us to do more than that because I love these um, far-flung trips that take us all the way around the world, but I also know what it's like to have a young family and the restrictions of budget that come with that and the restrictions of time. And so we're also going to insert in there some, some domestic work and witness trips, you know, to uh, other places in this country where it's cheaper to get there and we can do it without being gone two to three weeks at a time. But work and witness is this thing that changed my family's history. My parents went into full-time ministry only after they caught the work and witness bug and it completely wrecked all of the retirement plans. They gave their lives away instead. Work and witness is for you. You can also get involved with uh, investing some of your time in youth ministry. You can see Christine King and or any of the youth staff. We're always needing help teaching Sunday school, that is teaching the truths of God's word that protect us from digging giant holes that wreck our lives, teaching that to children and to teens. So we've always, always needing a little bit of help in children's department. So Dina, wave at the crowd. You have, you have need for a Sunday school teacher? It's awesome because you get to teach God's word and eat goldfish crackers at the same time. It's awesome. <laughs> Christine, age group, what is it that you're looking for teacher-wise? 
middle school boys. Well, that's the fun class, people. That's full contact Sunday school, right? Yeah. Pictures of bugs. Wow, you got off easy. I would have expected real bugs from the, from the middle school boys. Yeah, yeah. All right, time. Let's talk about skills, too, and it's just this. What are you good at? What, what can you do? What is it that you are passionate about? Know this. God gave you those passions and abilities, not just for your own amusement, though he likes to see you enjoy things, but he gave you the skill set that he gave you so that you could do something in his kingdom that makes a difference for other people. If you dwell on what you love and you dwell on God, I guarantee you in enough time he's going to put the picture of someone's face in your head too. And you can take God and your passions and that person and put those things together. Again, if you're not sure how to work through that process, you come see me and we'll sit down and we will dream together a little bit about how you can take your skill set and use it in the interest of other people. How the thing that you love can become an act of love that benefits other people. All right? I'm done. Listen, a long time ago, there was this guy. That, get, that gets an amen, really? <laughs> Probably only because it's Super Bowl Sunday, yeah. Listen, a long time ago, a man preferred himself. It drove him to the place of rage and jealousy and violence and murder. I'm going to say it again. A man preferred himself. Look where it took him. Place of great dissatisfaction, rage, jealousy, violence, murder, and then smarting off in the face of God. Sadly, that day's been repeated billions of times, hasn't it? Cain didn't love, so Cain took life. Let's not raise Cain. Let's not resurrect him. Let's not unearth that sad version of humanity and dress it up in church clothes anymore. When you love, you give to others your life. Jesus put it this way. You want a life? Don't hoard yours. Try to give it away, and you'll see that you have far too much to exhaust. Something like that in Luke 17, 33. It's Jesus saying, go ahead, I dare you. I dare you to try to beat me at the give away life game. As we close today, um, let's together confess our intent to join the love revolution by pledging to be our brother's keeper. Our brothers and sisters who are in this place in our church family, our brothers and sisters who are in this valley and those nameless, faceless, other-colored brothers and sisters of ours around the globe. This morning, I want that confession to come in the form of a song. Worship team, why don't you join me on the platform? We're going to end today with a song that we introduced uh, a few weeks ago called Hold Us Together. I want you to stand with me and sing it like we mean it. Know this, there's, uh, this altar in this church is always open. This set of furniture right here at the front is always open 
If you would like to come and kneel and pray because you feel that God spoke to you today and you want to you have a private conversation with him. But this song says that love is the thing that holds us together. And it says that we will, uh, with the help of God, pledge to do the thing that might stretch us beyond our ordinary abilities. We'll be our brother's keeper.